welcome to Way Too Seriously, the podcast where we watch kids' movies and then take them way too seriously. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we watched and we'll be talking about Despicable Me 2. Jan, do you want to tell us a bit about this movie? Despicable Me 2 is a 2013 movie uh, from Illumination Entertainment, written by Cinco Paul and Ken Dario, directed by Pierre Coffin and Chris Renard. It stars Steve Carell, Kristen Wiig, Benjamin Bratt, Miranda Cosgrove, Russell Brand, and Ken Jeong, among others. It is the second in the Despicable Me series, and the second one that we're talking about. So that makes sense, right, Paul? That is completely logical. Yes. It makes exact sense that we would talk about Despicable Me 2 second. Except what did we talk about first? I, 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 I'm not sure that's relevant. Not relevant at all. Um, so, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about the plot of Despicable Me 2? Sure. Former supervillain Gru has retired from supervillainy to focus on raising his three daughters, but after a dramatic heist of an experimental research station results in the theft of a serum that will create monsters, the Anti-Villain League recruits Gru to help them catch the villain who committed the heist. Gru and his liaison with the Anti-Villain League, a, an anti-villain agent named Lucy, set up in a mall to catch the suspected villain, and eventually do. That's the plot. Yep. They spend a lot of time in the mall following false leads and right leads, and there's... But, and and they get married at the oh, end. Oh, and they get married at the end because, of course, they do because, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. And there's some, you know, some evil minions in there and some. The villain uses the serum to turn minions purple and evil. Yeah. Um, but that's basically what the story is. Let's start, as we usually do, with a bit of an objective judgment of this movie. How good a job is everyone on this movie doing? Do you think? Well, in terms of story, I feel like this one is kind of spinning its wheels a lot. It's it's not clear exactly what the story, like the plot points are kind of all over the place. Yeah. And the love story is a bit tacked on. Like, I feel like they went into it going, we want by the end of this for Gru to get married. And so the girls can have a mother and a father. And and we find out in the next one that just mother. Ugh. Anyway, um, <laughs> but they didn't know how to get there. And so they didn't really do a great job getting there. I don't know. What do you think? I think in terms of writing... In terms of plotting and story writing, I agree with you. This is a mediocre story because they grew and Lucy arrive at the mall and grew immediately suspects the correct, correctly suspects the villain. And then there's a red herring that doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of 
delay, delay, delay before, yes, it turns out Gru was right all along. We knew he was right. Yeah. Like, I don't think we, the viewers, ever suspected that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like, there's just a lot of movie where the plot isn't moving forward at all. They're just in the mall having, you know, I don't know what. And the minions get captured. I mean, like, his his sidekick quits, and the minions get captured, and it's clear that the minions have been cl- captured by Dr. Nefario. Yeah. His sidekick. And then, Maybe that's supposed to be a reveal if you're a child. Yeah, I guess it is partly like that these things seem like they would be reveals if you're four and don't understand. And like, I guess that can, is a little bit forgivable. A yeah, little bit. A little bit. And the villains, I mean, and the villain is, as with the first and third movie, the villain, like they create a colorful supervillain who's you know, has a colorful backstory, but he doesn't have a lot of, like, his story is he was a big villain and then he framed his death and then now he's coming back. And why? Why did he fake his death? Yeah, why is that he coming was, back now? Uh, yeah, that's what I never understood. Is like, I've had trouble focusing on this movie, to be honest, but did they ever say why he faked his death? No. No. Or the timing of why he's coming back now? No. Or what his game plan is, like he's creating an army of indestructible minion type things. Why? Why? So that he has them and is evil. So like his goals. Why? And why did he use that that magnet to steal the? That was stealing the research se- center. Oh, right. That's how he got the serum. That's how he got the serum in the first place. Okay, so that was that was that explained. Was but like his ultimate goals are unclear, and it's fine that a villain's ultimate goal is to be villainous. Mm-hmm. But that is his motivation. Like his motivation is, I'm bad and want to do bad things. That's fine. He can be a villain. But his goal, what does he want to? achieve how will he know that he has won that's not at all clear Mm -hmm. and the timing why is this happening now not at all clear there's really no reason and that makes the whole story wobbly Mm -hmm. and similarly like you said the love story feels tacked on and it's the same kind of thing it's like why does Gru suddenly have want to have a love interest like I guess because Lucy's pretty interesting and is like in love with him immediately for no reason because female characters will get into that later. But it also is like just because she's there and the story demands it, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of like reason. She does kind of like him. She followed him before as a villain. So there is a little bit like she had a crush on him from like celebrity worship from afar. True. Yeah. But. So that is a little bit why she likes him from her perspective. But still, yeah, that that romance is pretty tacked on. In terms of the script, in terms of the other aspect of writing, I think this is not at all a bad, uh, badly written movie in terms of like it has jokes that are funny. Yes, absolutely. Especially I'm comparing it to Despicable Me 3, which we talked about uh, most recently. We're probably, this is not a promise, dear listeners, but we're probably going to finish up this trifecta and watch Despicable Me 1 next and do this whole thing backwards because that's what how it has worked out. But Despicable Me 3 was not very funny. No. It had moments, but as a whole, 
wasn't very funny. This movie had a lot of moments that there, really made yeah, me laugh. Yeah, I laughed a lot. Even with, like, I had trouble concentrating, there were still some great moments of of fun. Very many individual moments that were very funny. Yeah. So what about the voice acting? I feel like... Uh, I think every all the voice actors are doing a perfectly fine job. Kristen Wiig is uh, quite good as Lucy. Mm-hmm. Like she's high energy and high, you know, it works as a comic voice for sure. Her like peppiness um, as a contrast to Gru works, I think. Yeah. The other performances, like Steve Carell as a performer is funny. Like his deliver his performance is funny i don't know nothing really stuck stood out to me as being particularly great about his vocal performance but this movie made me laugh and he is delivering a lot of the lines so mm-hmm. he's responsible for a lot of the times that i thought it was funny i think the other voices are all fine mm-hmm. uh we talked is this the original like this is the same Mar- uh Agnes as the first movie, but different from the third. Is that right? Let me check as I was just checking that. Because this Agnes yes. seems good to me. Elsie Fisher in the first two. And like was the same. No, I'm sad to say bad things about a child actor, but just like this actor created that role and she does it. She makes big shoes to fill for the actress in the third movie who replaces her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they're all good. I like Kristen Wiig. I like her in general as an actress, and so I liked her in this. For some reason, I thought it was Shelley Long going into this. So what is Shelley Long in? She's in something else. Like Cheers. <laughs> yeah, I know she's in Cheers. Hello again? What? She was in a movie called Hello Again, where she died and then came back I to life. I feel like she was in a cartoon that we watched recently where she played, like, the love interest, but I guess maybe I'm crazy. Anyway. <laughs> it could be true, but I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So, yeah, I I agree that I think they're all doing great in this, and, and this is g- such good in comparison to Despicable Me 3, which we did a couple weeks ago. Uh... Steve Carell having only to do one voice is good and he does a good job as Gru. Yeah. It's very distinctive and funny. I don't know that there's much else. Are there any things you want to point attention to point out in terms of highlights or lowlights? What is the things about this movie that you thought were especially well done? I don't think the animation, uh, like... It was good. It was as good as the first movie, but I don't mm. think that they were pushing the envelope at all in terms of character design or in terms of like, yeah, artistic. Like it was like it looked like the last movie. They lived up to the animation standard of the last movie, but didn't surpass it. Yeah. So I don't think that's a highlight. I think it's just a thing that existed. I think the highlight of this movie in terms of skill to me is the comedy. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of like a specific scene that made me laugh. And now, of course, I can't think of any. But when the min- when there's a fire, when he is <laughs> calling Lucy 
He practices calling Lucy and it's a minion instead who says, like, can, he's all awkwardly asking Lucy out for a date on a phone. And we see coming that he's practicing because that's a trope. But the practice is with a minion who then says no. And that's not helping. So he sets fire to the phone and then the minion fire department comes in and the one with the <laughs> sirens on his head, who's just going, Bido, Bido. Like that whole sequence <laughs> had me like rolling on the ground. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Even the, the second, this is the second time at least yeah. I've seen this movie. So I knew what was coming, but it was still, <laughs> it's really funny. It's true. That is a great one. The minions in this movie, we complained some about the minions in the last movie. We found them funny, or in the next movie. We found them funny, but uh, we had problems with them. But I think they're much funnier even in this yeah, movie. Yeah, absolutely. We'll absolutely. talk about whether there are problems in the way too seriously, but just in terms of funny, like, the minions in this movie are hilarious. Yeah. I mean, they've. There's a reason why the minions have kind of like made themselves this niche in pop culture, and it might be annoying and oversaturated, but it also like in their actual movies are really funny, are really cute, and really like. And I mean, speaking of voice acting, we didn't even mention the voice actor, the one guy who does all the minions and all those voices, and his name is Pierre Coffin, who does. Kevin Stewart, Bob, and lent his voice to 899 minions, it says. He does a great job. The uh, Pierre Coffin is the director of the movie. Okay. The other person who does the voices of the minions is Chris Renard, the other director of the movie. So the two directors do... The minion voices. Do these minion voices that are just... I don't know, something about them. They're very funny. <laughs> They're really funny. Yeah. I mean, we could pick apart what makes the minions funny, but let's not. Yeah. Let's save that for the first Despicable Me. Absolutely. Look forward to that if we ever talk about Despicable <laughs> Me 1, which maybe <laughs> yeah, next. We totally will. We probably will. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of lowlights, we've already covered it. The lowlight of this movie is the structure of the story. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Oh, the highlight of uh, in terms of humor is the lipstick taser. When at the very beginning, <laughs> Gru yells, freeze ray, and then shoots uh, Lucy with a freeze ray. And she's like, you, you know, you really should announce your weapons after you fire them, Mr. Gru. For example. <laughs> lipstick taser! Oh, it works so good. Just that lipstick taser thing cracks me up every time. Yeah, and that's Kristen Wiig's delivery yeah. is 90% of why that is funny. Because it's like, lipstick taser, that's not that funny a line. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> but it's great delivery. Apart from our objective judgments of the quality, how much did you enjoy this movie? Not as much as I remember enjoying it in the past. I was surprised at how much I didn't enjoy it to be honest like i remembered despicable me being like kind of one of the good ones one of the surprising ones that was pretty funny but i think i'm thinking of the first one because this one kind of was all over the place in terms of yeah. plot and had funny moments but also was like i don't know the problematic things distracted me you said after we watched it you said to me before we started recording that in your memory you thought despicable me 
two was the best one. Yeah. And like now no. No. Despicable Me Two is not. It must be Despicable Me One that's the best one. Yeah, it must be. Which is what I think. What I thought all along. I always knew that. (laughs) Well, aren't you clever? (laughs) I also I this movie made me laugh quite a lot, but I do not have much desire to go back to it. I feel like my I would get just as much or more enjoyment out of just watching clips of the funny parts on YouTube as I get out of watching the entire movie. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And honestly, our kids, I told them like, do you want to watch what movie do you want to watch tonight? I gave them some options and it was despicable me or despicable me too, or some other options. And when one kid said despicable me and the other said despicable me too, and I kept my face neutral, but I was rooting for Despicable Me 1. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we'll watch it next. We'll That's watch fine. it next. It made me laugh. I didn't have a bad time watching it. No. But I'm not like, it's not on my rewatch list at all. Yeah. We saw like, the reason why I guess I thought this was better is because we saw the Minions movie in theater and it was like super bad. I did not like it at all. Yeah. And so... I guess I'm just thinking of like it seemed this seemed so much better than that. But it is quite a lot better than the Minions movie, and I think it's quite a lot better than Despicable Me Three. Yeah, I guess I thought maybe that like the first two were good, and then it went downhill. But no, basically the first one was good, and then it just goes downhill more and more, more and more and more into yeah. a bottom of a pit. I think I'm a little warmer on it than you are, based on this response. Because to me, the fact that it was so much funnier than Despicable Me 3 makes me, made me enjoy it more than, so much more than I enjoyed Despicable Me 3. Uh, that like, it wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it was terrible in terms of quality, I think. But yeah, I agree yeah. to disagree. Like, I don't know, I, I'm making it sound like I hated it, but which I didn't at all. It was, it was, you know, fine. So, should we get into the way Way too too serious portion of our show? Let's. Where would you like to start in taking this movie way too seriously? Let's start with El Macho. Let's start with El Macho. What? I mean, there's more than one direction to come to. There's more than one direction to to come to. I was thinking in terms of race, in terms of depictions of Mexican culture, depictions of depictions of luchadors, depictions of Cinco de Mayo, depictions like it was just what was it? I don't know. It was like they had a challenge, like someone made a bet or made a challenge or a contest of like how many Mexican stereotypes can you stuff into one character? Yeah, exactly. It was just stereotype after stereotype after stereotype. A macho luchador with an Aztec themed Mexican restaurant that has secret salsa and guacamole chip hats and he dances the salsa and like he dances the uh, la cucaracha. He dances to la cucaracha as his code to go into his secret basement, and he like is just. He has a Mexican flag tattooed on his chest. He has, and he has a huge Cinco de Mayo celebration. Except I think it was called something not Cinco de Mayo. 
I think it was called something Cinco to something else. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't remember if it was. I missed it. But yeah, so there's a lot of Mexican crammed into that character. Yeah. What do you think about that? I feel like it's... It's a perennial problem we have on this podcast where, like, is bad representation better than no representation? And I am still not sure exactly what I think, but I think bad representation is bad representation. I think so, too. And this is very, very highly stereotyped and kind of rubbed me the wrong way because of that, just because it is... It was just too much. Yeah. The supervillains in all three of these movies are very, uh, like, gimmicky and, uh, and, like, all the characters in all these movies who are minor characters are fairly, like, they have a gimmick, they have a thing, but his gimmick was Mexican racial stereotype. Yes, exactly. And like, you have a villain whose gimmick is the 80s and a villain whose gimmick is Mexico. Well, Mexico is a real place with real people. The 80s was a real place with real people. I yeah. know. I'm being facetious. I'm being You're like, being facetious. <laughs> because it's not the same. No, it really isn't. And, I mean, maybe we should just really spell out, why is it not the same? What is the difference between an 80s villain who has got a lot of 80s stereotypes why is that why is a mexican villain with a lot of mexican stereotypes worse than an 80s villain well the 80s were just a time frame they don't represent any kind of specific culture they just represent what was popular at a certain time yeah whereas being mexican is a nationality with many different people who live in mexico and many different people uh, who celebrate various aspects of that culture and lumping it into like one guy is just wrong. And the stereotypes about a decade are always invariably uh, both tongue in cheek and also like they, anybody who has lived through that era feels uh, both kind of lampooned by it, but also affectionately addressing it. And those who haven't lived through it, either because of their age or because they were in a different cultural context and didn't experience the specific stereotypes that a time frame is represented by, they can still recognize that this is an exaggerated caricature of a specific culture at a specific time. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have a national And I'm saying national to be generous because I think it's actually racial and there's a difference between those. Mm -hmm. But let's be generous and say when you have a national stereotype, you are uh, flattening the complexities of people who have a lot of different interests and talents and desires. And uh, that erases when those things only get represented in those stereotypes again and again and again, it really erases all the many people who don't fit into those stereotypes, which is everyone, because those stereotypes don't represent anything real. Yes, exactly. So there are real Mexicans 
who deserve to be represented sometimes on screen. And what they get instead is a luchador who sells salsa. Yep. And that's quite disappointing. Very disappointing. Exactly. And I mean, while we're talking about nationalism and race, um, at least El Macho is portrayed by Benjamin Bratt, who is Latino. We have Steve Carell portraying Gru, who is like... East, Who knows? Eastern European of some kind. Very his, stereotyped accent that he has there. And his accent, like, why does he have the accent that he has? Because foreigners are funny. Yeah. And because foreigners are evil. And because foreigners I mean, are evil. That yeah. come from that comes in the first movie, but like that idea of like kind of Cold War era yep. Eastern Europe equals yep. villain. Yep. That's a little bit playing on stereotypes from like Bond films and stuff, but it is a problem to have a caricatured accent, especially coming out of someone who doesn't have that accent naturally. Steve Carell's accent is definitely like foreign people are funny and evil and isn't that a foreign man. And while we're on the topic of foreigners in this movie, there's another one and that's the uh, wig salesman played by Ken Jeong mm-hmm. is like has a Fu Manchu and talk and is like also kind of they play up some he's a wig salesman and he's blonde but it's yeah. a wig right and he has a blonde Fu Manchu right and he's like I feel like they're playing with racial stereotypes there also hmm. I didn't notice that one because but... he has a bit of an Asian accent and a Fu Manchu yeah, like a pan Asian accent. Mm-hmm. This is once again like it's just uncomfortable. Is yeah. what it is. It's just uncomfortable because I feel like they're not being respectful at all. Agreed. Um, what else is needs to we need to talk about? We could talk about in the still talking about El Macho. We could talk about the idea of Macho. Mm, yes. I don't know, in the context of macho, I'm not sure exactly what I think, because it's so clear that they're mocking the idea of macho-ness. Mm-hmm. Like, He died in the most macho way possible, riding a shark with 250 pounds of dynamite strapped to his chest into the mouth of an active volcano! It was glorious! Like, that's clearly a satire of the concept of macho-ness. But at the same time as they're satirizing it, they're also reinforcing it. Mm-hmm. Because he is physically strong and physically impressive, and he is macho. And that's a thing that exists, and he and they connect that macho-ness to, like, he grabs a woman by the walking by in the mall and, like, twirls her around and she sighs at him and and that whole moment when he's dancing and like i'm just not totally sure what to make of his macho-ness what do you think i think that yeah it is problematic it is a problem that it's re reinf- it might be making fun of it but it's reinforcing it and it's saying things like if you 
if you have your big muscles and you're super cool, you can just grab a woman and smooch her. And yeah. you can... And he, he doesn't smooch her, but he does spin her around. Like Yeah, you're right. He doesn't quite. He, um, as much as he does have an end game, it's to make himself more macho. It's to yeah. have the serum and and make himself a monster, basically. And so it's the end game is to make himself the most macho ever. And that is a problem. And so but isn't what we see in the text that making yourself the most macho ever literally makes you monstrous. Yes. And so maybe it's, so maybe it's not reinforcing them as much, but I'm not, but it's portrayed as cool earlier yeah. in the movie. And yeah. so I'm not sure what they're trying. They're muddled in what they're trying to say. I think that's right. Yeah. Do you want to talk about uh, what's the second, the oldest kid? Margot. Margot. Do you want to talk about Margot and her boyfriend? Do I? Yeah, that's my question. Do you? <laughs> Margot and her boyfriend. See, I had forgotten completely that she has a boyfriend in this one because she has a boyfriend in the third one. Sort Is of. Is this the thing? Well, yeah, sort of. But I mean, like, does she have a love interest in the first one? I don't remember. She I don't is think like so. 12. I mean, okay, here's the question that I have. How old is Margot? I read her as 12. I think we are told in the first one that she's 12, but I don't remember. 12 or 13. We're definitely not given a number in this movie. She's no older than 13 or 14. Yeah. I think that the third movie actually does ever so slightly better with this love theme, this this bad love theme, because although that story is really, really bad, at least what the text of that movie is, is like, this is an absurd thing to happen. She should not be getting engaged because she's a child. This is crazy. Whereas this movie is not sure whether or not Margot having a boyfriend would be a good thing. Yes. I feel like... Her having a crush on a boy at the mall is totally acceptable for a girl of this age. It's a little tacked on, or it's yeah. quite tacked on. Yep. But it kind of fits the theme of the movie, because the theme of the movie is about romantic love. Sort of, yeah. So, like, there's a lot of this movie that is about romantic yeah. love. But Margot and this boy and their relationship, nothing really happens. It's very... Like, she meets him, they like each other, she goes to this Cinco de Mayo and dances with him, and then he dances with another girl, her heart is broken, and the end? Mm -hmm. There's literally nothing after that. It doesn't seem like it uh, achieves anything in terms of plot for the movie. Not at all. Except as far as it's about Gru and his need yeah. to protect his daughter. And we have, in terms of that theme, early in the movie, Gru is saying goodnight to his girls, and he's kissing them all goodnight, and um, youngest girl, Agnes, is being really adorable, and that's another one of the moments that's laugh-aloud funny. She's like, sometimes I imagine your head is a little egg, and a bird will come out, and I peep, peep, peep. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, that's a great one. And he says, never get any older. Mm -hmm. That should have been 
the point of the Margot story, but it isn't. I don't think they... It should have been about Gru not wanting them to grow up, but they're growing up anyway. Yeah. But that never... Nothing comes of that. They drop it, they pick it up sort of with Margot, even though he was talking to Agnes when he said it. Yeah. And it doesn't end with anything, it doesn't develop into anything. But I think that's why that story originally is there. That's what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be showing that Margot is getting older and Gru doesn't want her to. He wants her to stay a child, uh, but she's turning into a woman. Mm-hmm. It's super muddy. It's not clearly established at all. So, like, they don't pull that off, I think. But because I think that's the, the what that's meant to do, that's why that story is there. And I think it's all about Gru. Mm-hmm. It's not about Margot and her, like, feelings. They're not explored. We don't really care about her feelings. She gets heartbroken at the end, and no one cares. Yeah, exactly. No one cares at all. No one. Gru's heartbroken for a while, and we care a lot. Yeah. Margo is heartbroken, and it's a joke that she's heartbroken in the same way that Gru was. Haha, isn't that like... Mm-hmm. We don't care about her at all. Nope. And then the way that they... I found the story with Margo and then... Antonio, her boyfriend, mm-hmm. who they call her boyfriend, which, by the way, I don't have, like, I do have some problems with the mandatory compulsory heterosexuality plot where a 12-year-old has to be paired off with someone and I'm flopping over in my chair right now. Okay, but fine. That's not in itself terrible and a 12-year-old can have a crush, as you said, which, like, it's just the uh, boyfriend is one of the parts of that that gets my back up. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just a personal parenting style. I think 12 is too young to have a boyfriend, and you might disagree, and we could have a reasonable adult conversation about that if you want to. You, the listener, me, I agree with you. The whole story really reminded me of a conversation we had for Hotel Transylvania, mm-hmm. with their father wants to protect... Or control the daughter's uh, romantic and sexual agency. Mm-hmm. Right? So she doesn't have any sexual identity that he doesn't control. He possesses her. He possesses her relationships. And he's the gatekeeper to all of her relationships, especially her sexual ones. And so it's the father is jealous of her potential romantic and sexual partners. That's skeezy and gross. Yeah. And this movie could have landed somewhere very much better by making it about Gru doesn't want her to grow up because he wants to maintain her childhood and the affectionate relationship that they've had, but it doesn't. It could have been that, but instead it lands takes a step back and lands on this, I'm jealous of your boyfriend because I don't like him. Yeah, exactly. And I think even Hotel Transylvania, too, even Hotel Transylvania, I mean, that's like underneath this, I don't want you to have a boyfriend, is this much less gross, I would like you to stay 
who you used to be because growing up is a saying goodbye to something that I used to love. Like, I think there's nothing wrong with that theme. It's a very touching theme. Yeah. And this movie misses it. It's a real missed opportunity, I think. A way stronger story than Gru is afraid of women and wants to learn to be comfortable with women and Lucy, like... Yeah, exactly. A much, much stronger story would be he adopted these girls and brought them into his life and he loves them and now they're growing up. And that means saying goodbye to something that he learned to love. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the movie almost was going to tell that story and then it decided to tell a different story and the story that it decided to tell doesn't make much sense. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I really agree with you and I really like see I have this trouble because because of her age and the difference between this and you say about Hotel Hotel Transylvania is that in Hotel Transylvania it's a father trying to control his daughter's like sexuality and her getting married and having a boyfriend and like actually being a grown-up whereas with this it's like she's a child and yeah. She doesn't, she shouldn't, like, she's way too young to, like, be having sex and, like, doing any, like, and yeah. as a parent, you do need to control a little bit who your child yep. hangs out with at this age. You don't ha- control who your child hangs out with at 19. And yeah. so, the difference between those two things is is significant, but this movie plays it the same way, and that's where the Absolutely. problem lies. Yeah, absolutely. Is that this movie plays it like this protective father with a shotgun as opposed to this nurturing parent who wants to help their child grow up in this world. A hundred percent agree. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about gender in any other way? I mean, we could talk about Lucy as a character. I kind of love Lucy as a character. You love Lucy? <laughs> I love Lucy. Um, I do too. I think Lucy is actually a really great character. She um she has a lot of strength. She has a lot of a-, a lot of agency. She chooses she chooses where she is. She's an agent of this organization. She chooses to work with Gru and everything she does there, she chooses to uh when she comes back, like I don't love that she chooses a man over her career in that yeah. moment. But I, but I really like that it's her choice. Yeah. And when she gets damseled by being like tied to a shark that's tied to a rocket or whatever, she she does a lot of things that lead up to that that are so uh, that are so strong and such a, such a strong choices that lead up to that that I don't really fault the movie that much for for damseling her at the end. And. He doesn't like she. He doesn't capture her because she she's Gru's love interest. No, he captures her because she's one of the two agents working to destroy to to take him down. Take him down, yeah, right? Exactly. Like it's not El Macho's way of getting at Gru. No, it's because she's an agent. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that's better. Mm-hmm. And a lot of her jokes come from her surprising competence. Yes, which is always. Not always, which can very often be a really funny vein 
of comedy for any character. Mm -hmm. Like a character who is just unreasonably competent. Like when she just jumps out of a plane, when she decides to go back to Groot and she's like, well, I'm leaving. And everyone on the plane's like, okay, bye. And she jumps out of plane and then out of her purse comes a giant hang glider. Like that's quite funny. And all the humor comes from nobody is reacting as if this is an unusual thing for her to do including her like jumping out of a plane does not face her no one else on the plane is phased yeah like exactly. all the humor comes from her uh unexpected competence yeah would you compare that to in i mean i don't want to keep comparing but in the third movie she is not particularly competent she doesn't display unexpected competence she displays unexpected incompetence and she is damseled by someone who's just damseling her to get to grew yeah exactly and that's really frustrating it's a big difference yeah yeah because yeah in this one she um she also pursues grew because he's she's not just the object of grew's desire he's the object of her desire as well yeah she she pursues him first really And and he reciprocates. And I think about, like, he rescues her from being tied to the shark that's tied to the rocket by, like, getting the ropes off. And they both dive into the water. And he's worried about her, but she's perfectly competent to swim. And she, like, jumps on him to hug him. And, like, it's... I don't know. I just really like that moment. It's a fairly... It's depicted as a fairly equally competent equally powerful equally uh active relationship where they both have things that they want and that they what they want is ends up being each other which is not so much better than she's his prize for whatever yeah exactly and while i do think the romance has its problems i don't think any of them lie in her yeah and her character because i think her character is very good basically i think i don't know if this is your thought i think where the romance really has a problem is in terms of like plot and theme mm-hmm. that it's they decided to have a romance so it becomes the most important thing in the story when it, this would have been a way better story if it was still about grew and the girls and it isn't really mm-hmm. and it should be yeah absolutely that's why the romance plot feels bad yeah to me is there anything else you particularly want to talk about in terms of the way too seriously of this movie? I don't think so. I think it helps. We didn't mention the Bechdel test, which it passes because it has four female characters in it. And the girls talk to each other about stuff. Yeah, all the time. It's Yeah, it does that really well. And uh, the minions may all be male, but at least there's four main female human characters. And we... Maybe I should talk very briefly about the minions because in movie three, we really complained about the minions and drag and the minions are so leery and so like male gazy. Mm-hmm. And this movie has a moment of one of the minions like falls in love with Lucy that is uh, a little male gazy, except that he it's much more comic because he's not just like objectifying and gawking at her he like fantasizes them picking flowers together and it he goes off on this uh absurd romantic fantasy which is funny because it's inappropriate Mm -hmm. but also like the minions just wear all kinds of silly they're individual minions wearing all kinds of silly clothes and so some of them are wearing 
like there's a coconut bra and a, a grass skirt in this movie. Yeah. Yet it didn't bother me because it was one among many like yeah there's like a french maid's outfit and a little girl's outfit and yeah there's so many outfits and a firefighter outfit and like one trips off and is running into the beach naked and they're, they're just like yeah some of them one has a jar on his head one they're just dressed weird and funny and doing silly things and one is a bartender with like a big afro and a fu manchu uh and so it doesn't feel like they're dressed in drag. It feels yes. like they're dressed in silly costumes. Yes. And it's a big difference to the next movie where it feels like they're made extra male mm-hmm. so that dressing, so that slash because dressing in male, dressing in drag then becomes the joke. Yes, exactly. Just wanting to draw attention to like a lot about the minions are handled so much better in this movie. Yes, absolutely. I already asked. Are we are we done? I think I think that's a, that pretty much draws us up to a to an ending. Um, if anyone wants to talk to us about you know how much they love the minions, how would they do that, Paul? You can talk to us on Twitter, where we are most active at WTScast. You could send us an email, way too seriously cast at gmail dot com, and we will read and answer that as soon as we get it. You can find us on Reddit and Facebook and Instagram and find notes for find links for all of that in the show notes. Including a link to our schedule for all of our future episodes and what we plan to do in the future. Yeah. If you like this show, you can support it by rating and reviewing it wherever you happen to be. Apple Podcasts, you know, matters the most because most people use it. Let's just be honest. Um, and if you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. You can uh, s- support us with as little as a dollar a month, and that will help us continue to do what we're doing and to get us equipment and time and all the things that make this possible. So I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. And lipstick. Don't announce your weapon, man. Oh, sorry.